he was forecasting the destruction of the temple. And the disciples asked him, when will this happen and when will be the sign of your coming? And uh, the thing that happened about the temple, the temple was actually destroyed in 70 A.D. And yet the Lord is still not come again. And so when you read this passage, you need to read them with uh, spiritual bifocals. You need to understand the first part of Matthew 25 happened in 70 A.D. Uh, when Jerusalem was, and the temple was destroyed. And the rest is still to come, and we're waiting for Christ to come again. So with that in mind, look at Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. The word again, or whatever you have there, ties it into the previous paragraph. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one who had two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents brought the other five. Master, he says, you entrusted me with five talents. See? I've gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Most translations have enter into the joy of the Lord. The man with his two talents also came. Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came and said, Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word to God's people. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might see truth in a familiar passage Don't let us allow the familiarity of this passage to rob us of its impact. May we be your good and faithful servants, and may we one day enter into the joy of the Lord. So bless the preaching of your word in the name of Christ. 
Amen. I went to school with a guy named Rocky McKelvin. And some of y'all remember Rocky. Uh, Rocky came here and spoke uh, several years ago to the men in the church. Rocky ran an outdoor center in Alaska where he took people uh, on trips to go bear hunting and fishing and all kind of things like that. Uh, very successful. Several presidents went with him, uh, Colin Powell, a lot of different people. Well, Rocky was a unique guy. He came from California, and he just didn't match up with us southern people. I made fun of him because he showed up one day, uh, first day of class, and he came in what I call crocheted shoes, you know, that kind of looked kind of feminine to me. But anyway, teased him about it. But Rocky was unique, and so we had this professor, Roy Taylor, who taught us preaching. And about every class, Roy would draw on the board. He would draw this cliff and this cliff, and then he'd draw a bridge over it. And he said, uh, this is God, and this is God's people, and preaching is bridge building. And he did it all the time. And one day he turned his back, and Rocky said, Dr. Taylor, Dr. Taylor, are you going to draw that bridge again? And he said, yeah. He said, I don't think I can take any more of it. And Roy just kind of was, uh, I don't know if he finished the drawing or not. But he was doing that every so often to make a point. You know, kind of like our football coach used to say, if you run 33 right, they cannot stop it. Well, obviously, we never ran it right because they always stopped it. Making a point by repetition that's what the Bible does. It makes a point by repetition. And Jesus repeats the same thing in these two chapters, basically six different ways. He uses three stories or three images in chapter 24. He uses that of Noah, that of a thief, and that of a servant to talk about the second coming. It will be like in the day of Noah, that when you don't expect it, eating and drinking, then the flood of God's judgment will come. It'll be like a thief in the night. You don't know when it's going to come, so be perpetually ready. It will come like a, a master back to his, 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 his farm, and, and you've got to be prepared. And now we see in chapter 25, last week we saw the parable of the ten virgins ran out of oil and weren't prepared, and today we see this one about the talents given, and some of them were foolish and some of them were wise. But six times, Jesus uses parables or illustrations to drive home his message. I'm coming again. You don't know when. You need to be perpetually prepared and faithful, and I will bring you home. When you look at this parable, I think you can learn several things. You can learn that God is gracious and that he allows us to work in his kingdom. And God praises those who faithfully work in his kingdom. And God judges everyone who works in his kingdom. Let's look at the first phrase, that Jesus or God graciously allows us to work in his kingdom. Remember what we said about a parable? A parable is more than just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That a parable actually means to throw down beside. And so what you're doing, you're taking this parable and you're throwing it down beside the second coming of Christ. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will come. And so you're talking about this parable compared to the second coming of Christ. And you look at them and you say, how do they compare? Well, Jesus 
uh, is, is represented by the master, the master who is wealthy beyond measure, and he gives to his servants, and his servants would be uh, particularly in that instance would be his disciples, or in a wider range would be anybody that's a believer. God gives these talents. And then the coming again to settle score stands for the second coming and the judgment. And Jesus is doing what he always does. He's reminding us that we're really in charge in his absence. You know, when we were made in the Garden of Eden, God told us to be fruitful and multiply. And he also told us to rule and subdue. That we were stewards of his kingdom. We were stewards of the earth. And then when Jesus is leaving, he gives his last words in his ascension. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. For I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what Jesus is doing is he's reminding us as he leaves his disciples, he's leaving the task to these 12 men to preach the gospel and impact the world. Somebody said, what's his plan B? He doesn't have a plan B. This is his plan. The parable is really easy. It's five talents, two talents, and one talent. It's hard to describe what a talent is, but a talent is not what, you know, we call a talent today. It's a measure, it's a weight where you measure money. And so you put this talent, this measurement in a scale and if you put it in a scale and put gold in it, it's, it's, it's worth more than if you put it in it and put copper in there. And most people believe what is being referred to is a, a talent of gold. Now, you could calculate how much it means, but technically, exegetically, hermeneutically, getting into all the context, it means a lot of money. More than you can count. Some people say it means the equivalent of 38 years of wages. And so you're talking about a lot of money. But he's not giving us money. He's giving us this talent, this money represents what we have to invest in the kingdom of God while Jesus is gone. Waiting on Jesus to return that he graciously and generously lets us work in, our king, in his kingdom. He could do it without us. Now, yesterday I made uh, cinnamon roll pancakes. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. And I let my grandchildren help. And it took longer than usual. So you have to, you know, pour the pancake batter on the griddle and then you take the... Uh, you, you make this cinnamon, sugar, butter, and you make it swirl around on the pancake. And when they do that, and then it bubbles up, you turn it over. And then when you get it out, you do the same thing with, uh, with powdered sugar and milk or, or water even. And I could have done it, and Sarah and I could have done it real quickly. But once you engage little children in it, it takes more time. But what you're doing is you're bringing them into your joy. You're bringing them into your love. And that's what God is doing. He's graciously, generously, lovingly letting us, allowing us to be involved in his work in this world. It's amazing. 
So you look at this talent and you ask the question, well, why didn't he give them all the same talent? Well, the answer is because he knew their ability. He knew what they were capable of. And in his wisdom, he gave them what was needed to fill the plans that he had for them. And if they didn't need it, he didn't give it to them. And so the one who had five, God had big plans for him. The one that had one, God knew what he could handle and he could invest for his glory. But God generously, graciously, lovingly gives us what we need to make an impact in his kingdom. And we are not to be jealous or covetous or envious or complain about the talent we have compared to another person's talent. I was reading an article on the internet and this author made the point that that when you look at these talents less is still a lot. You might have less than other people but you still have a lot. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Stop and pause sometimes when you're on that, well I don't have as much as they do. Stop and see what God has really given you. And you will see that even in your, quote, less, he's still giving you a lot. And in your less, you're still important. You're still significant. You know, sometimes we forget what the insignificant, seemingly, parts make of a whole. You remember when the Challenger exploded and we were just dumbfounded as we watched on TV it took off and right after takeoff it just blew up and why did it blow up was it some great engine malfunction was it something that they had had not designed right and hadn't hadn't uh, calculated it was a little bitty rubber o-ring probably cost pennies that caused a fuel leak, that blew it up. The little things matter, and they make a great impact. The old saying is, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the battle was lost. For the failure of the battle, the kingdom was lost. Your gift, ability, talent makes a tremendous impact. And so here's what... J.C. Ryle says about your talents, your abilities. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges in the members of Christ's church, our advantages of possessors of a Bible all, all are talents given to us by God and we are to invest them to the glory of God we're going to say more about areas in a minute one of the problems with having a minister for 39 plus years is you've heard some of his stories but the good part is maybe you'll remember them because I've told you so much Remember when Dr. Long was here? Dr. Long had been a missionary in Brazil, down in the jungle, somewhere in South America anyway, and he had planned to have this uh, meeting where 
people from surrounding villages would come to hear the gospel. And he'd gone, you know, by horseback, and he had put up signs, and he'd talked to people he thought we could get a crowd there. And the day came for the event, and one cowboy showed up. One. That's one more than the first Bible study Sarah and I had. None came. One cowboy, and Dr. Long said, I gave him the whole load. And so after it was over, the cowboy ate, and he went to the barn to saddle his horse, and Dr. Long was talking to him, and he said, you know, the cowboy said, I, I think you're trying to get me to do something in there. And he said, I was trying to get you to do something. I was trying to get you to give your life to Christ, to give yourself, to, to serve him with your gifts and abilities, turn from your selfish ways and serve him. And he said that cowboy got down in the dirt and basically prayed this prayer. Lord, I'm not much. I can't read and I can't write, but I'm yours if you'll have me. That's what this parable is about. We might not be much, but that much is important in the kingdom of God, and God wants us to use it and graciously allows us to. The second thing is God praises those who are faithful in his kingdom. So the servants come back, and the one has five, and he has five more. It says that he invested at once. You get the idea that he got this money, and he's going to invest, and he's going, wow, I'm going to do it. I love my sir. I know we're going to, I'm going to go put it. In. It doesn't tell us where he put it. He probably didn't put it on Red 11 or something like that, or he didn't take it to Tunica, but he invested it. It's a lot of ambiguity there. But he invested. Where do you invest that kind of money? A million dollars. What about five million dollars? It doesn't say, but he went and invested. It's a story, remember. He invested it once, immediately. The second one had two, and he went and invested his. third one buried his. The master comes back. What happens is the one with five comes and says, Hey, look, I've gained five more. It's like, you know, man, I've gotten, look what I got for you. You know, he was, he was so happy to show it to him. And the second one came and said, Hey, I've gotten two more. And he was so excited to, to show it to him. And the master praises him. Well done. One of the commentaries I looked at said the idea is married. Bravo. When in the world have we said bravo? You know, it's, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You know, that's the idea. It's not just well done. It's great. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's a big principle is God rewarded not their success, but their faithfulness. Well done, you good and faithful servant. Not good and successful, not good and wealthy, or good and anything else. Good and faithful. I was telling Sarah this is a terrible thought to have, but I, you know, if we would write the Bible, we would say, I wish the second one had only gained one more, because it almost makes it look like if we double our ministry or double our money, then we're being faithful and that's not the case God has not called us to be successful God has called us to be faithful 
to invest our, our abilities and our time and our money in the kingdom of God and leave the rest to him. One person got nothing, not because, and he was con- condemned for that, but he got nothing because he put nothing into it. It's faithful service, doing something. Now this parable, if you have your Bible open, you look back at the very first verse of chapter 25, it's about the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And then this one is connected to it in verse 14 again, so the two are going together. And the kingdom is different than the church. The kingdom and the church are not synonymous. Kevin DeYoung says they're kind of like looking in your rearview mirror over on your right side. Objects appear closer than, look uh, closer than they appear. They really are close together, but they're not the same. The church is what God is doing among his people. His grace is a saving grace. It's a sanctifying grace. It's an equipping grace. And once those people in the church move out of the church into the world, that's the kingdom of God. Those are the things that we do that aren't, quote, church work. Here's a way to look at it. I don't, I, I tried to figure out, you know, we don't have one of those fancy boards or don't want one. But anyway, just think about if you had a piece of paper and you drew a circle in the middle of the paper and you put church there. And then you built, then you made a bigger circle and you put kingdom there. And then outside of that, you write eternal kingdom. Because what God is doing in the church, he means for us to take out into the world to impact it for good. And the kingdom is not just teaching Sunday school and catechism and singing in the choir and being a pastor and being a missionary and things like that. Those are things that are done within the church. It's when we go outside that safety zone. This is what one writer says. The church is tasked with living for the world and not merely seeking to survive in the world. It means that Christians proclaim the gospel corporately in worship on Sundays and live out the gospel in their daily lives. The gospel otherwise leads to what Abraham Kuyper called the architectonic. Isn't that good? Uh, Architectonic, anyway. But he's talking about if you don't have that idea, it shrinks what you can do when you talk about serving the Lord. But when you expand it to the kingdom, then you... It affects business and accounting and farming and nursing and engineering and art and medicine and research and music. That as we as believers go out there into the kingdom and begin to put God's stamp on it, That's kingdom work. Abraham Kuyper, maybe not a familiar name to all of you, was a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was the one who was famously known for making popular what he called a world and life view. 
that Christianity ought to have a world and life view. We don't just have a church view. We have a view of what we're going to do in the world and for the world. I know I've sat with Larry before, and they have meetings where they plan. And they say, we're going to have all these athletes here, so we're going to go here, and we're going to go there, and we're going to do this and have this training for these athletes and stuff. A world and life view where you take your faith out into the world. Abraham Kuyper not only taught it, he did it. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian. He was a politician. He was a prime minister of the Netherlands twice. He was a writer. He started two newspapers. He was a pastor. He started not only a church, he started a denomination. He came up and popularized the idea of common grace, that is grace that God gives to the unbelievers through us and through things of nature. That God is good to all. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the sun to shine on the evil as well as the good. That's common grace. But he gave us this world and life view so that you can make an impact tomorrow where you are. Chuck Colson was in prison, so what did he do? He started a prison ministry. Joni Erickson was paralyzed, so she started a disability-type ministry. Read where one lady had a child out of uh, wedlock and gave it up for adoption, so she began to work for Bethany, adoption agent service. Find out what God has given you and begin to serve him faithfully, and he'll praise you for it. The third thing is that Jesus judges everybody who works in the kingdom. The master comes back after a long, I pause there, a long time. Jesus is hinting probably, or maybe I'm just exegeting it wrong. Jesus is hinting that he's not coming back tomorrow. After a long time, the master comes back. And what he does, he does an accounting. He does an audit. You know, when the IRS sends you an audit, you start sweating, you know. And God is coming to judge everybody. Everybody will stand before God in judgment. That bothers us unless you're a believer. Because eternity is not going to be settled that day by whether we did good or bad. That day will reveal the evidence of our faith or the amazing grace of God that worked in us despite our faithfulness. But what he says to these two servants, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, now enter into the joy of of the Lord. Enter into the joy. Not enter into my house. Listen carefully. Ponder deeply. Not, not, not into my mansion. Not moving in your cloud. I want you to enter into my joy. C.S. Lewis says, we've all seen beauty and we want to pass into it. We don't want to just see it. We want to be beautiful. We want to be part of that beauty. 
And what Jesus is saying here to his faithful people, enter into the joy, dive in, deeply drink of the joy of the Lord. That's what awaits us. What is heaven? Pearly gates and streets of gold are symbols of, of the fact that we will enjoy forever the glory and the joy of God. There's a book. Ted always says we need to have Sunday school classes on any book I hold up on the pulpit. But it's entitled The Pleasures of God. And uh, John Piper takes the passages where it says God is delighted or finds pleasure or finds joy in, and he writes a chapter on it. But he talks about this eternal joy in this one chapter, and I just want to read it for your enjoyment. God is never irritable or edgy. Man, I was irritable yesterday. You ever had one of those days? God is never irritable or edgy. God is never fatigued or depressed or blue or moody or stressed out. His anger never has a short fuse. He is not annoyed. He is, not, he is above any possibility of being touchy or cranky or temperamental. Instead, he is infinitely energetic with absolutely unbounding, uneasing, unending enthusiasm for the fulfillment of his delights. This is hard for us to comprehend because we have to sleep every day just to cope, not to mention thrive. We go up and down in our enjoyments. We get bored and discouraged one day and feel hopeful and excited another. We're like geysers that gurgle and sputter and pop erratically. But God is like Great Niagara Falls. You look at it and think, surely this thing can't keep going on forever. It seems like you'd have to rest or it'd run out of someplace upstream and dry out. But no, it just keeps gushing and crashing and making honeymooners happy century after century. Such is the joy of God. Can you imagine being enveloped into a joy that never ends? That's what this talks about. The one who comes with one talent, probably still dirty from being buried in the yard, says, here's your talent. I knew you were a harsh man, and you, and you reap where you didn't sow, and so here, here's, here's what's yours. I didn't lose any of it. It's kind of the idea. So you have nothing to be mad at. And Jesus calls him a lazy and evil servant. Was he evil because he was lazy? Or are those two different ideas? I think they're two different ideas. He was lazy in that he didn't invest it. He didn't take any chances. He didn't involve himself in any ministries at, at whatever. But he was evil in what he said and thought of the master, which is God. You're hard. You're harsh. You, you, you reap where you didn't sow. You know, you, you're unjust. You take what's not yours. And he's evil because of what he thought about God. Did you know that your investment in the kingdom of God is probably greatly influenced by what you think of God? God is good. God is gracious. God is kind. God is forgiving. 
to those who are in Christ. You see, when Christ comes back to judge the world, that judge, if you're a believer, is also your advocate. He died for you. And so the confession says, not only are you received into the glory of God, but so are your works as feeble and as tainted as they are. God receives the good works done in sincerity and goodwill in our hearts. That's not the exact wording. It's 16, Westminster Confession, faith 16, paragraph 6. Remember when Ronald Reagan was shot you know that you you know I can see it. I didn't look it up, but I, you know that they they shot him and the uh, guards pushed him into the car. And I think when he was in the emergency room or the operating room, wanted to know who the surgeon voted for. Uh, but his pastor came to see him, and he says, uh, knowing that this was serious, his pastor said, uh, President Reagan. How are, you with you? How are you with the Lord? He said, I'm good because I have a Savior. At death's door, he knew he had a Savior. That's what it's all about. Do you have a Savior? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being gracious and good to us. Thank you for working in our heart faith. And make us all the more faithful as we see the day of Christ approaching. May the coming of Christ make us pure and holy people. Thank you for the privilege of being able to invest in your kingdom. Help what we do tomorrow, whatever it might be, bring honor and glory to you. And if, and if by chance there be some people here who've never been like that cowboy and said, I'm not much, but I'm yours if you'll have me, would they give themselves to you even today? In the name of Jesus, amen.